Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 34. Let's read the word, remembering that this is the perfect, infallible, inspired word of God, which is able to save our souls. Let all who have ears to hear, hear the word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I'm going to continue reading to the end of the chapter. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Father, We want to hear from you this morning. I pray that you would use me, despite my weakness, to glorify your great name. Open all of our hearts, Lord, that we may receive your word with gladness and by your grace obey it. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the last many weeks we've been looking at Uh, what we've called the golden chain, or what theologians have historically called the golden chain of salvation, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we've seen that the golden chain speaks of God's eternal purpose. And his purpose is that all who love him would come to be conformed to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that he, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, would be the preeminent one among many brethren, among all his people, the church, his bride. That is the great good for which God is causing all things to work together, to synergize as a divine conductor of his glorious orchestra, he makes all things to work to that end for your favor, for your blessing. And we see that the the golden chain is really an expression of God's perseverance on our behalf, that our salvation is not conditional in the ultimate sense. It is completely settled by him. For whom he foreknew, the ones he set his love upon, and this is before anything was made, in eternity. 
those he predestined, he marked out to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the final destination that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn, the preeminent among many brethren. And then he continues to chain. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he marked out for that purpose, these he also called. And that is he effectually called us. He brought us to life when his word called our names individually to hear the word of the living God and to live. We were called. And these he also justified. And we saw that that is the theme of this whole book of Romans. He justified us by grace through faith in his Son. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. (laughs) And we saw how wonderful it is that Paul and really the Holy Spirit through Paul, the apostle, has, has given each of these actions of predestination and calling and justification and glorification all in the past tense. And we saw that that is because of the certainty of God's salvation. It is so certain, it is as if we have already been glorified in God's mind. And so then Paul begins this next section, verses 31 through the end of the chapter, and he is anticipating a great question or several questions from uh, objectors, those who would be tracking with him and yet not be settled in their thinking on this, maybe not believe these truths. And Paul is going to anticipate several objections and address them for us. Um, you know, some of the reasons why we struggle with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints or what's also called the eternal security of the believer, that what God starts, he ultimately will finish, um, is because we have examples in our lives, don't we, where, this is one reason we doubt sometimes, we can look to people in our lives who seem to believe for a time, and then they fall away, they depart the faith, and we say, well, what about them? How is it that Some can depart the faith and not reach the end. That seems to be in contradiction to this truth that we're being taught. And the scripture does provide an answer for that. And it's really simply stated in 1 John 2, verse 19. Where John says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. See, Paul and the Apostle John here is addressing this very issue. How is it that some can depart from the faith and yet we still hold to this truth of the perseverance of God's saints? Well, the answer is that there are some who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ who don't possess saving faith. They are counterfeit believers. Those who ultimately lose their faith and depart from the faith, evidence that they never had true faith to begin with. That's how this is reconciled in the Scripture. That's why we have the parable of the sower. 
There are four types of soil that are given us in the parable of the sower. And there's two types of soil that appear to give life. There's some plant that is beginning to grow from these soils, but then we know that there's pressures that come, either through the heat of the noonday sun, which scorched them, and, and that's representative of the, the Word of God coming to bear on these false professors when they're asked to take a stand with Jesus Christ for righteousness, and they're not willing to, and so they crumble, they wither and fade. And then there's another group who are choked out by the thorns, the, the cares of this world, riches, the things that they really want more than anything else, which crowd out the Word of God. But there is only one kind of soil that is fruitful. It yields the fruit of obedience, and that's the good soil. That's the soil of the good heart, that the Lord himself as the master farmer prepares and, and furrows and causes his seed to take root. And then he himself waters it and cares for it and brings the sun upon it that it would grow and be fruitful for his namesake. And that is us by grace, loved ones. We are those, those foreknown, those predestined, those called, those justified who are also glorified and will be glorified. So now that we are coming to this section 31 to 39, these objections, as I say, come up, and there are two major headings under which they fall. The first major heading is, is there any person who can be against us? Is there any person who can be against us? That is a potential objection. Yes, Paul, these truths are wonderful, and we, we want to believe them, but there are so many who could be called our enemies. What about them? Could they cause us to lose our salvation ultimately? And then the second heading, verses 35 to 39, is, well, aren't there circumstances that are against us as well, or could be against us? And there are many of those. Could any of those cause us to ultimately fall away from the faith? And each of these headings, the persons and the circumstances, has a number of related questions that Paul is going to ask He's going to pose these questions as a way of addressing the potential objections. Today, I'd like to look with you at the first major heading, and that is, what persons are there, what people are there, or groups of people who can be against us? Let's look together at verse 31. Paul says, what shall we say to these things? Well, what things is Paul referring to? This is a concluding statement or question. And it, of course, immediately refers to what came before it, which is the golden chain, verses 28 through 30. What do we say to that? What's our conclusion if we read and, and understand the golden chain, that God's salvation is settled, every part of it? But he's, he's got more in view, I believe, than just the immediate three preceding verses. You could say all of chapter 8. What shall we say to these things, the particular work of the Holy Spirit, in applying our redemption that Christ purchased for us at the cross, he applies to us, each one, in space and time as he regenerates us and, and brings us to life through that effectual calling and then fills us with himself. He comes to dwell in our hearts and gives us a new heart and a new mind and new set of affections and he gives us sonship and an inheritance and all the things that we learned about and have been learning about in chapter 8. What about those things? But I think Paul would even say, let's go back to the beginning of the letter. 
What shall we say to these things? Really since Romans 1.16 and following, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. What is it that we have learned as the overarching message and theme throughout this book of Romans? Is it not that man has really one central need, one need above all needs, and it is this. He needs right standing with God. He needs justification. That's what that means, right standing with God. And why? Because he's not right with God from the time of his birth. From the time he enters this world, he is born a sinner. He is born a sinner because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when we went through that text in Romans 3.23, the sense was all sinned at one point in the past. All of us sinned at one point in the past and have come short, are lacking the glory of God. We've missed the mark of righteousness, really is the context. We've come short of the righteousness that he was testing us for in the garden with Adam. We sinned in him. When he sinned, we all fell in him. And that was that whole point in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. When? In Adam, back in the garden. When we were in him, in his loins, having yet to be born. But it's not only that we are born sinners, but when we but that we also decide to sin willfully in our lives as a practice from the earliest time we can. We do. And Paul has told us that it, is, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew who has several privileges. The, the law of God, Abraham as your father, circumcision. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a pagan Gentile, somebody from any other nation who has never heard of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All are under sin. Romans has taught us that no one seeks after God. And that the wrath of God abides on every one of us because we all suppress the truth. We suppress the truth in what he calls unrighteousness. God has revealed himself to us in his creation. Everyone knows that he exists just by looking at creation. No one can deny him. There's no such thing as an atheist, truly, according to Romans 1. But man refuses to glorify God for what he sees. He refuses to attribute honor, praise, adoration, worship to that God who has revealed himself to him. And rather what he does is he worships and serves the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Rephrased, he worships himself. He loves himself and he has departed the Lord willfully, rebelliously, and pursued his own pleasures and his own way. And so all of us have been concluded, Jew and Gentile, under sin. 
And we are slaves to it. This is apart from Christ, how we are in our natural state. So what man needs more than anything is righteousness. And the key message of Romans is there's no way that he can earn it on his own, by his own works. There's nothing he can do to achieve righteousness. This is the fundamental error of all men outside of Christ on this earth. He believes that he can do something to get himself out of this state of wrath and condemnation. That he can do something to earn favor with God and achieve some state of heaven as the final state. But Romans 3.20 reminded us, by the deeds of the law, that is, by trying to keep the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight of God. It's not possible to keep God's law for righteousness. In fact, the opposite happens when you try to keep his law. His law only exposes your sin and condemns you. But there's good news, brothers and sisters. There's gospel here. That means good news. And that's this. This Romans 1.16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So here's the connection with the justification. God provides justification, but it doesn't come through your works righteousness. It comes through faith alone. God graciously gives it to us. It's not something we earn. And we saw in chapters 3 and 4, that point underscored time and time again, right? Justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone. When we get to Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, it's all about what God has done for us. What he has done for us, not what we have done for ourselves. And then he summarizes it so beautifully in Romans 8, 29 and 30 in this golden chain. And you remember the emphases are on the he, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For whom he predestined, these he also called. These he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Every component of salvation is of the Lord. That's the good news. If it were up to us, we would not make it, not one of us. So Paul has set all this truth before us really as witnesses. And he's asking us now, what's the conclusion of the matter? If God is for us, who can be against us? Actually, the way the Greek reads is not if as in a condition, as if God can or cannot be, might or might not be for us, but since God is for us is the proper translation here. Since God is for us, who against us is how the Greek reads. Who's against us? What person or group of people can be against us? And you might say, well, as Christians, we have many potential enemies um, whom we could rightly say are against us, couldn't we? I mean, we could, we could take the world, for example, that's an easy target, and we could say, well, think of all the people and groups of people who would like nothing better than that we should depart from the faith, that we should just hang it up and be done with this nonsense. Perhaps family members, perhaps teachers in schools and universities 
who see us as narrow-minded and bigoted and hateful even? What about coworkers or employers who don't like that we don't take part in their crooked dealings and maybe joining them in activities that they would consider fun and they secretly despise us because of that? What about every, every cult, every false religion and all the groups that are represented by those where their whole message is about the fundamental goodness of man and his ability to save himself at some level? What about the popular culture in which we live? Don't we hear all around us shouts for tolerance, shouts for non-exclusivity? They would say, it's fine if you worship Jesus as long as you don't tell me that my way of worship is not okay. As long as you don't tell me that there's only one way to God. What's the message of the world? Well, it's summarized in that bumper sticker all of us have seen too many times. Coexist. Everyone is seeking truth, right? We all just have a different perspective on that truth. No one is wrong. It's just a matter of your relative point of view, and all point of views are to be embraced. Or maybe the message is, better yet, that of syncretism. Let's embrace the best elements of each of the different ways to God. Combine it together because the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. See, Christians are public enemy number one in this fallen world because we stand for the exclusive truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel as the only means of salvation. And we stand for righteousness, don't we? A right way of living in this dark, perverse world in which we live. We are lights that expose the darkness and they hate us for it just as they hated the Lord Jesus before us. So the world is certainly against us. What about the devil? The devil and his demons, they are against us too. In fact, Peter describes the devil like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour, whom he may devour. That's a constant prowl. That's a constant threat. So the world's against us. The devil's certainly against us. And what about even ourselves, meaning our old sinful selves? Well, that's what Paul spent Romans 7 talking about when he described in detail this war that he is engaged in with the, the flesh, the, the body of death that's still attached and hanging to him, that he hates. Yeah, the world is against us. The devil's against us. Our own flesh is against us. It, it just seems like, Paul, is, is there not some person or group of people among all those where we might lose our no-condemnation status that God has given us in Christ? Is there someone who could make us ultimately fall so we don't make it to the end? See, it's important to remember the context here is the, this golden chain we've been talking about. What is God's gracious purpose? It's to bring us to the end, right? Conformity with Christ, that Christ would be the chief among many brethren. And so Paul is really saying in this question in verse 31, who's able to break the chain? What person can separate the the last two links in the chain are justification from our ultimate glorification. Who can break that off so that we never ultimately arrive there? And that's the question. 
And Paul's saying, since God is for us, can any person be against us in this sense? Can any person ultimately prevail against the God who is for us? So that we would lose our salvation. And the answer, of course, is no one. No one. Now, Paul is going to tell us why in verses 32 to 34. And I want you to see his first answer in verse 32. And he poses the first answer to the question with a question of his own, which I love. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? See, Paul is going to demonstrate for us how God is for us in a very succinct way in this one verse, verse 32. He says, he who did not spare, he, he who, who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about sparing his own son, so he's got in view the father here, God the father. And Paul uses a word in the Greek that's called a particle. This is a little bit technical, but it helps to make this point. A particle functions to emphasize not itself, but the word that it's attached to. So Paul uses this particle and he attaches it to his own son. So the way this reads in the Greek is, he that even his own son did not spare. That's the function of the particle. God the Father did not withhold, spare, even his own son. His own is expressing the uniqueness of his son. God has many, quote-unquote, sons, and I, I use that in the lower S sense. Many sons that he has created for himself. His angels, his angelic host are his sons. Uh, the sons of men who are redeemed are his sons, lowercase s. But he only has one unique capital S son. And he's unique because he is the uncreated one. He is the eternal son who always was and is and is to come. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the eternal word of God who is called Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And he's unique because he's the only son who is sinless, who's never had any sin. He, he was born in this world without the sin of Adam because of his virgin birth. And what is it that the father did not spare his own son from? Well, it, the text says, but he delivered him up. He delivered him up. That's a term that means to deliver or to give into the hands of another, to give into another's power. And it's used in the Gospels to refer to when Jesus was led away and delivered to Pilate. He was given over into the power of Pilate. And ultimately, that was a delivery to death, wasn't it? Isaiah 53, verse 8 says, For he, referring to Messiah, was cut off from the land of the living. That's death. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So not just stricken, but stricken to the point of death, to being cut off. Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's a reference to the cross. And what is the curse? The curse of sin is death. 
He was delivered up to die, and the Word says that it was God the Father who did it. God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. He did it. Yes, He used human means. He he used sinful Jews and Romans to physically crucify His Son. But it was God who ultimately delivered Him up for us all. For us all. By the way, this is the same phrase that Paul uses in verse 31 where, where he says, since God is for us. Same thing here. He uses the same preposition. He was delivered up for us. For is the preposition that means over, as in above, a, a covering. It's used in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, where Paul said, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, in the place of the ungodly, as a covering for the ungodly. This is the for us. So what he's saying here is the Father delivered the Son to death in our place as our covering. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel message. Why did he do that? To pay for our sins. Because we couldn't justify ourselves. We couldn't pay for our own sins. Again, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Romans 8 verse 3 told us, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. That is, we didn't have the ability to keep the law because the weakness was not in the law but in us. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5:21 for he God made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the gospel message. We couldn't save ourselves. Christ stepped into our place and suffered the wrath of God that we deserved to suffer. He died the death that we deserved to die. I want you to notice this is Paul just describing for us. How does he describe that God is for us? Well, not in some abstract, sentimental feeling, but that God the Father did something to show his love for us. What was that? He delivered up his Son for us all to die in our place. We all know John 3.16 and it speaks to this same idea. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This love of God is a sacrificial action, isn't it? He delivered him up for us all. Why did he do that? Well, We couldn't do it for ourselves, we know that, but what was his motivation for doing it for us? Because he loved us. Because he loved us. With his everlasting love. Not because we did anything to commend ourselves before God. We couldn't. We were condemned as criminals before the bar of his justice. He took pity on us and said, live when we were spiritually dead. Gave us 
the righteousness of his very son. It's like he dressed us in the robes of Jesus and he now looks at us as though we had lived his perfect life of obedience. How costly is this love of God, brothers and sisters? This verse here in Romans 8, 31, 32 really speaks to that. The Father went to the greatest expense possible is what Paul is saying. He didn't withhold even his own beloved Son who is infinitely more valuable than any of his created beings. But he delivered him over to die a shameful death in our place and to bear the wrath of God that we deserved. An eternity of hell fire that was coming our way. He, He willingly was cut off from the land of the living and became a curse for us all. And if the Father was willing to do that, If he spent the most in order to justify us at the cross, here's the argument. Will he not spend less in order to ensure our ultimate salvation? Will he not ensure our sanctification and our ultimate glorification, those last two links of the chain? Do you see how this connects with that idea of the perseverance of the saints? If God the Father demonstrated that he loved us in the past, by sending his son away to die in our place, now that he's brought his son back to life and to live forever, will he not continue to show his love to us by freely giving us all things? See, Paul is using what is really a classic Jewish argument here, which is from the greater to the lesser. If he's done the greater, don't you think that he'll also do the lesser? Of course he will. This is an argument that Paul has used several times. He used it in Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. Look at that with me. Romans 5, uh, actually starting in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now that's interesting. Paul is saying God demonstrates, present tense, his own love in something that he did for us in the past. But it doesn't stop there. Much more than verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, that's the greater, he killed his son for us, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We will make it to the end and we will never face his wrath because he's done the greater in substituting his son for us on the cross. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, there's the greater again, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved, the Greek says, in his life. In his life. So it's the same message. If God has not spared his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? He will save us in his very life. That is present tense. He will sanctify us, cause us to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. As we look to him in his word, he will change us accordingly. And at the last day, he will glorify us with the very glory of Christ, the, the, the resurrected, exalted Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back for us. So how is Paul answering the first objection, which is, again, can any person prevail against us? The answer is no. And his reason is simply 
the love of God. That's his answer. He's saying, look at the love of God on display. He's loved you, past tense, by justifying you at the cross, delivering his son up for you. Won't he certainly love you in the future by freely giving you what he calls all things? Yes. What does Paul mean exactly? He will also freely give us all things with him. Well, he uses the verb form of the noun for grace. It's the action form of grace. He will be gracious to you is what he's saying. He will, that word also refers to granting forgiveness. He will pardon you and continue to pardon you in the future of all your sins. Again, it's not earned. Paul is speaking of the glory and the grace that we have been given in Christ. Is he speaking of the future forgiveness of all our sins? Yes. Isn't unforgiven sin something that would keep us from heaven? Yes. So he continually forgives and intercedes on our behalf. But is there more in view? Yes. He says all things. <laughs> what does that include? Well, just to give a, a couple of refreshers on this, back in Romans 8.28, he said all things work together for good for that purpose of being conformed to Christ, conforming us to his image. So he's synergizing all things for our benefit to that final end. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The all things includes eternal life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. He's given us the gift of his Holy Spirit so that we might know his word, that we might understand it rightly. Psalm 84, verse 11, For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He will continue to give grace and and glory. Grace for what? To be conformed to Christ. And he will make us more and more like his son, which is glorious, because Christ is glorious. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, those who were instructing them, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. It's amazing. All things are yours in Christ. He who overcomes, Revelation 21, verse 7, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So we have an inheritance and ultimately, that inheritance is identified for us as God himself. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So, this is, this is the glory of the Scripture. All things are yours in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. So, what are these all things? Well, it's... All of God's grace, 
which is acting toward you as the forgiveness of sins, as eternal life, as his glory, as the gift of his spirit, as the knowledge of God and his word. Even death is yours because death is now a conquered foe in Christ. Death has no claim on you anymore. When you close your eyes in this world, you will open them immediately in the presence of the Lord and worship him. Eternal inheritance is yours, and that inheritance is God himself. It's all things. So, I think we can see pretty clearly, if God has done for us what he's done in the golden chain, if he's justified us, and we know he's done that because we now believe, he will now not withhold anything from us. The last link, glorification, it's yours it's coming, anticipated. It's certain to happen. So, can any person prevail against God since he is for us? No. What's the reason? The love of God absolutely precludes it. The love of God will not allow any person to prevail against us. The eternal love of God is working for us, for you. He's already spent the most to justify you, so he will continue to give you his grace to ensure that you never fall away. Rejoice. Now, Paul is going to give an example of how some person might be against us. He actually has two examples he's going to raise, one in verse 33, one in verse 34. We'll take the one in verse 33 for today. And that is this. Some person who might be against us can be against us in this way. They can seek to bring accusations against us. That's how they can be against us. They can accuse us. He says, who shall bring a charge? That's a compound word in the Greek, which is the preposition in and the verb to call. So he's saying, who shall call in, as in call in a debt against you? Who shall call into question your righteous standing before the Lord? This is legal language in a courtroom. Paul is saying, who will come forward with an accusation or a charge against God's elect? Well, before we answer that, I want you to notice he uses the word elect for the first time in Romans. That word is implied in the word predestined, which we looked at in the golden chain, which means marked out. Same idea. God made a selection. He, he chose, and that word elect is really the word to speak out. God made a verbal declaration when he called your name, and he recorded it in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. You are the elect, all those who are in Christ, who have been justified through faith in him. And Paul is saying, who will bring a charge? Who can accuse this group? And he says, God's elect. It's the same as the us all that he um, mentioned in the last verse. Paul is not suddenly starting to teach universalism, that God saved everyone. It's the same group that he's speaking of throughout this whole passage. The, The same group who love God, who have been foreknown, predestined, called, etc., the same group, the us all, the elect. And he says, who will bring a charge in the future tense? Well, what might somebody accuse you of? Well, of sin, right? We sin all the time. 
Well, the one who probably comes to mind most readily when we think of accusations is the devil himself. He is called the accuser of the brethren. His name means accuser or slanderer. It's diavolos, the one who hurls these accusations at us like fiery darts. Paul in Ephesians 6 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That is, his craftiness, his cunning arts, his trickery. Ephesians 6.16, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. What are these fiery darts? They are his accusations against us. Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That is, constantly seeking to devour. How? By accusation. By accusation. So the devil is certainly a person. He's a fallen angel, a created being. And his main strategy is to bring charges against God's elect. And how does Paul answer that? Well, He says simply this, it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. It's very interesting here. You have to look at the tenses in the Greek to understand the sense sometimes. He is saying God is justifying. He uses the present active participle. It is God justifying. In other words, God who is always justifying us always declaring us right. And you might be thinking, well, why is Paul saying that? I thought that we were justified once at the cross. Yes, we were. But the context here is that we have an enemy who is always against us, always bringing up charges against us. And so in answer to those charges, God is justifying. For every charge that comes against us, he is defending us. For every blow that comes to us, God is parrying that blow with his own righteousness. It is God justifying. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we have a great example of this. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, that means a lawyer, a defense attorney, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It is Jesus Christ who is defending us against every accusation that the devil continually hurls in our direction. When the devil fires his accusations, Christ himself is saying, I died for him. I died for her. I paid for that sin and all those sins which have yet to be committed that we will be accused of as well. So, What's the net result? Well, those accusations of the devil are now ineffective. Is he against us? Yes. Can he bring his charges? Yes, and he does. But those accusations will not stick. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to this wonderful text. Hebrews 2, 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of, the, of flesh and blood, that's us, He himself, likewise, that's Christ, shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Christ in his death died that he might destroy him, literally having the power of death. What is the power of death that the devil has? It is God who ultimately has the power of life and death. But the devil has the power of death in this sense, the power of accusation. The power to bring up a charge against somebody which would condemn them and lead to a sentence of death under God's own law. He has that power. He uses that power. But Paul is telling us here in Romans 8, he doesn't have that power against us anymore. It is God in Christ who justifies us against every one of those accusations. That is such a relief to know. How many times have you felt accused? Accused of your sin? Accused of falling short, coming up short in many ways? Not glorifying God? Not living for Him with all your strength as you're called to? And yet, the Lord says, Look to me. It is God who justifies. You cannot be accused rightly anymore. Previously, you could. When you were in the kingdom of darkness, you were under the control of Satan. He had his goods in peace. He kept you. And he could rightly accuse you all day long. Guilty, guilty, guilty. But not anymore. Since Christ, as the stronger man armed, has redeemed you, has rescued you from the control of Satan and has cleaned your slate of all of your debt that you owe to God. He's paid your bill. Thank you, Lord. So, yes, the devil certainly can and does bring up accusations against us, but they are ineffective. Can anyone else bring up charges against God's elect? Well, you might say, well, could Christ himself bring up charges? Could, could he at some point, just decide that he's done advocating for you. <laughs> of course not. God is Christ and Christ is God. And he is the one who is justifying us. He's not going to justify and condemn at the same time. So it's not Christ. It's not God. Here's another one that maybe we don't think of too often. But what about the law? Can the law accuse us anymore? The law does accuse sinners, doesn't it? It stops every mouth it gathers everyone as fish in a shoal, a net, according to Galatians 3. And it pronounces all of us guilty, that is, sinners outside of Christ. Guilty. So can the law still accuse us at some point in the future when we sin? Well, we learned wonderfully in Romans chapter 7 that <clears throat> we've become dead to the law through the body of Christ. We've become dead to the law in this sense. The law has no power to condemn us anymore because Christ has taken our condemnation in full. That doesn't mean we have no relationship to the law anymore. In fact, we have an entirely new relationship with the law that Paul talks about in Romans 7. We now love the law. The law is the desire of our hearts. It's our innermost delight. We want to keep the law, but not for righteousness, not to earn anything with God, but out of thanksgiving for what he has done for us in Christ. Amen? So the law has no power to condemn us anymore. What about the world? <clears throat> Could someone in the world or some group ever come against us with a valid accusation? 
John in 1 John chapter 5 addresses that. Verse 4 where he says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, your faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the world cannot condemn you. You've overcome the world because you've been born again of God. And he's given you a faith which will never disappoint. You are overcomers of the world. What about, what about we ourselves? Do we ever accuse ourselves? Do we ever see our sins so acutely that we begin to question whether we've ever been saved at all? <clears throat> Do we perhaps know that we're saved but feel condemned when we are not performing to the level we think we ought to be performing? The scripture addresses that too. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Brothers and sisters, feelings are a liar. The word of God always takes precedence over subjective feelings. Look at the cover of your bulletin this morning. Samuel Rutherford. Rutherford, believe God's love and power more than you believe your own feelings and experiences. Your rock is Christ, and it is not the rock that ebbs and flows, but the sea. That's a wonderful truth to come back to time and time again. Our hearts do condemn us at times, and I have to just confess to you, I felt very accused and condemned to some extent as I was preparing for this message. I thought I had everything done yesterday morning, and I did not. And I wrestled and struggled yesterday into the night, late, and the Lord knows. And I just felt like a failure. And the Lord, wonderfully, through the very message that he's having me prepare, is teaching me the very point of this whole lesson, which is stop looking at yourself. Look to Christ, for it is God who justifies us. Remember that. He is continually justifying us. No accusation will ever stick against you again. When we sin, what do we do, brothers and sisters? We confess our sins to him, don't we? Knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise. It's ironclad. And the children of God do that. We, we obey that. We confess because we know we have forgiveness in Christ. So, the devil can't effectively accuse us anymore. The law can't effectively accuse us anymore. The world cannot do it, and nor can we ourselves. And certainly, Christ doesn't because he's for us. He justifies us. Do you see how Paul is answering the second objection now? Can any person bring a charge against us? Answer, no. What's the reason? The love of God again. And he just says it in this way. It is God who justifies. That's his love. That's that part of the golden chain. He, he's justified us because he foreknew us. He loved us in eternity. His, his love is eternal. So he will do everything to continue to demonstrate his love toward us. We are effectively immune from every kind of accusation. In that ultimate sense. We're immune but there's something else that we have to recognize here in this verse, which is really important. There's another person who is also immune from these attacks. 
aside from us. I want you to listen to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Isaiah says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now when you read, read about God's elect in the Old Testament, or the servant of the Lord, it is referring primarily to Israel as a nation. But it also references the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, as in this example. Because this is a hymn. Uh, my elect in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. It was Christ who was anointed with the spirit of the living God to bring the light of truth to the nations. So Jesus Christ is also God's elect. And that now changes our understanding of this verse a little bit. Who will bring a charge against Christ? Have you thought about that? We're so busy, I'm so busy thinking about me that I have to step back here and, and say, Lord, what is going on here? Who will bring a charge against Christ? If Jesus Christ did not do everything required to secure his people's salvation 100%, that is to say, not only that he died for us at the cross, but that he makes every provision for our sanctification all the way to our glorification to the end. If he didn't do that completely 100%, then somebody could rightfully bring a charge against Christ. Do you see that? Somebody could rightly accuse Jesus of leaving his people in an ultimately vulnerable position. Well, they have to keep believing. And if they lose their faith, they're out. No. See, Christ will not be accused of being a, an ineffective or a partial or a potential Savior. He is the Savior of the world, and that means of all his elect, all his people of all time. So no one can bring a charge against God's elect, Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, itself, that itself proves the doctrine of perseverance, the perseverance of the saints, or the preservation of the saints. If Christ hadn't done everything to secure us, then he rightly could be accused. And this scripture says, who can accuse God's elect? It is God who justifies. God justifies Christ, just as he justifies us. See, the devil is crafty, right? He not only accuses us to God, but he accuses God to us. Oh, yes, Christ died for you at the cross. But he doesn't ensure your final salvation. You have to keep yourself saved through obedience, through works of the law. I mean, it wouldn't take much for you to lose your faith, would it? Speaking as the devil, right? These are the whispers that happen. Just consider how many times you sin today alone. What gives you the right to call yourself a Christian when you're so polluted by sin? Why should Jesus continue to advocate for you and cleanse you? Those voices are powerful, aren't they? And how do we respond? What is the Lord teaching us to do in response to that voice of accusation? But to come back to this text right here. It is God who justifies. Look away from yourselves. Look to Christ. He continues to justify you. 
Turn with me just briefly to Isaiah chapter 50. This was our call to worship this morning. In Isaiah 50, there's this wonderful exclamation of confidence that Isaiah makes. And he says in verse 7, For the Lord will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who's speaking here? Well, Isaiah's speaking. But ultimately, look back at verse 4 and verse 5. The Lord has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. Who who could ever say I was not rebellious? I never once rebelled against the Lord, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Who's speaking? Is this Isaiah? Or is Isaiah speaking prophetically of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you hear that? It's Christ who is speaking here who says the Lord God will help me in verse 7. His confidence is in the Lord. Why? Verse 8, for he is near who who justifies me. See, Christ knows that God justifies him. Who will contend with me? Who is my adversary? Surely the Lord God will help me. How is it that Jesus Christ, when he came to this world and he was shamefully treated, wrongfully accused, they arraigned a group of false witnesses against him to condemn him and none of their witnesses agreed with one another. They couldn't condemn him by their own word. Pilate was ready to let him go because he saw no fault in him. The Roman executioner who killed Jesus, the centurion himself declared, this is a righteous man after he saw what had happened at the cross. God raised this Jesus from the dead to vindicate him and show that he had no sin of his own and that all his work was perfectly satisfactory to the Father on our behalf. So how is it that Jesus was able to entrust himself to the Father when he was going through that terrible trial leading up to the cross? When he was falsely accused time and time again, what was his answer? He kept entrusting himself to the Father, to the one who judges righteously. Why? Because Jesus knew Isaiah chapter 50 was speaking prophetically about him. That it is God who justifies him and his trust was in the Lord. Do you see the parallel, brothers and sisters? Where do we learn what to do when we are accused by the same voices that may come from us or the world or the devil? We come back to this text in Isaiah 50, verse 8, and to Romans 8, 31 to 34, and we say, it is God who justifies. I'm not condemned, and I have to remind myself of that time and time again. In fact, every time the devil accuses me, he's putting, as Luther said, a sword in my hand that I can use against him. 
Because when the devil accuses me of being a sinner, we should respond the way Luther responded and say, you don't know half the half of it, Satan. I am far worse than you say that I am, but I have a great Savior who died for me. And he can't say anything against that. He is dealt a blow by the truth of the living God. Brothers and sisters, just as we close this morning, the question that Paul started with in Romans 8.31 is, what shall we say to these things? Since God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say to these things? And my question for you is, what do you say to these things? What do you say now that you know the truth of the golden chain of salvation, that God is for you in every respect? Who can possibly be against you in any meaningful way? Brothers and sisters, let's spend time in the Word of God and read about this great God who fights for His people and defends us as our great shield and fortress and buckler, our defender, the Ancient of Days. Spend some time in, we've looked at so many verses, even this morning in our Sunday school class, which was wonderful. We went through the Psalms and saw many of the verses that relate to this. I, I just was thinking of Isaiah chapter 40. Spend time in Isaiah 40, verses 10 and following to the end of the chapter and read about this great God who sits above the circle of the earth and views the inhabitants of the earth as grasshoppers. The, the nations are nothing as before him. He measures the waters, the, the oceans, the seas, the lakes, the rivers of the whole world in the palm of his hand. He, he can measure the, the span of heaven that we can't even see. He, he's got it measured out. He is so infinitely great. The Lord is bringing us to understand more of his greatness, isn't he? So that when we have the accusations against us, we know where to turn. This great God who is for you, you will persevere to the end by his grace. Trust him for that. Delight in that. This is, and just one final thing, this is where Psalm 27 con concludes, and that was our call or corporate reading this morning, excuse me, Psalm of David. Psalm 27, David is expressing his confidence in the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came up against me to eat up my flesh. So there's the attacks that, that come, the accusations. My enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Yes, they are going to come against you, but they ultimately will stumble and fall because the Lord will defend you. Look what he says in verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Which house is he talking about? Is he talking about the temple at the time that he wrote this? He says, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, think accusations, he shall hide me in his pavilion. That means tabernacle. In the secret place of his tabernacle, in the holy of holies, he will hide me. He will set me high upon a rock. In other words, out of the reach of danger. Where is this temple he's describing? This is no earthly temple. This is the temple of heaven, 
This is the spiritual temple, the heavenly temple to which all of us have been raised in Christ, where we are seated now with him. This is where he wants to spend all of his time. And you say, I thought if we're already seated there, then what do you mean that we would spend all our time there? Well, our bodies are on the earth, are they not? And we have to address our minds to heaven to recognize what is already true of us. We are seated there. (laughs) Muse on this. He will hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle. He will hide me and set me high upon a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. And then look down at the end, verse 13, he says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed. Believed what, David? that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's talking about perseverance. David believed in the perseverance of the saints. He knew that he would see God with his own eyes one day in the resurrection and that he would finally be satisfied when he arose in his likeness. He looked forward to that day. I would have lost heart. I would have been overwhelmed with all of my enemies' accusations and their attacks against me had I not believed that truth. Look to the Lord and his faithfulness. In fact, he puts it this way, wait on the Lord, which as Pastor Stan rightfully said earlier, that's a proactive measure. Lean into him. Call out to him. Be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, we have many enemies, but none of them can effectively stand against us. Our remedy is the love of God. Look to him and see it. It's replete in the pages of scriptures and delight in your God. What do you say to these things this morning? Let's pray. Father, you have a wonderful way of bringing us to silence our mouths before you and to behold your glory, to be careful what we are to say because you have spoken such wonderful things. Truth, Father, that is eternal, that stands the test of time. And Father, you are calling us to simply confess what is right that you have said about yourself. To come to know and embrace and love and rejoice in these truths because they glorify you. They magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. They evidence that a work of grace has been done in our hearts because we are now able to do what was formerly impossible for us. We are looking away from ourselves to you and believing you. Father, I pray that your word would take deep root in the hearts of your beloved bride this morning and that she would bear much fruit for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.